You are listening to the Best in Wealth Podcast, episode number 170. This is the Best in Wealth Podcast, a show for successful family stewards who want real answers about wealth and investing so we can feel secure about our family's future. At the Best in Wealth Podcast, we think differently about wealth and investing, and you should too. Well, hello everyone. My name is Scott Wellens and I'm your host of the Best in Wealth Podcast. Now, this is a show dedicated to helping real people, that is you, my friend, build real wealth so together we can take family stewardship to the next level. I am a certified financial planner, a fiduciary, an educator, a Dave Ramsey Smart Vester Pro, and a wealth advisor. It is great to be with you today. Today's episode is about getting a good night sleep. But before we get to the topic of the day, if you are a first-time listener, thank you for tuning in to Best in Wealth. If you're a long-time listener, hey, hey, welcome back. And if you could do me a giant, huge favor and leave Best in Wealth a review at the Purple Podcast iTunes app, that would be awesome. Now, How are your sleeping habits? Mine used to be awful. I think we can all agree that sleep, though, is so important. I mean, when we're young, gosh, the pediatrician says my kids need 9, 10, 11 hours of sleep at night. When we're older, we better at least be getting 7, hopefully 8. Now, at my house, I think my kids get real upset with my wife and I because we go to bed extremely early. Kids? They go to bed at 8.30, 8.30 to 9, and then we're in bed at the same time because I don't know about you, but man, if I don't get a good night's sleep, everything else goes bad. I mean, can you sleep good at night? Do you often get a good night's sleep? I know a lot of us struggle with it, and a lot of times I do too. When I'm thinking about stuff that's stressing me out, I just can't fall back asleep. You know, that stuff, you know, stuff like work or something with the kids or finances or whatever. What do you do when you can't fall back asleep? Or what's your routine at night so you can go to sleep at night? For me, there's a few things that I need to make sure that I take care of. One, I need to have a consistent bedtime just about every night in order to have a good night's sleep. Number two, I need to get as much stuff done as possible before I go to bed for that whole morning routine, stuff for the kids, put my workout clothes out, that kind of stuff. I got to have a fan. If I don't have some kind of noise, forget about it. Sometimes I take one of those little gummy bear melatonin. My wife says that's supposed to help me sleep. And if I wake up, and Lord knows I will, to go to the bathroom more than once at night, I keep all the lights off and I try not to think about anything. What keeps you up at night? Let's get to the topic of the day. All right, here we go. What keeps you up at night? Are you getting a good night's sleep? Let's talk about it. Because for a lot of us, it's money. I mean, I remember when I had very little money a long time ago. I was ridden with debt. I had so much debt, probably more than most people listening to this podcast. Man, 
did I have stress. It was hard for me to sleep at night. I was constantly worried about how am I going to pay the rent? How am I going to pay the electric bill? How am I ever going to climb my way out of debt? Well, now I don't have any debt and I got a little bit more money in my pocket. But guess what? There's still stress. It just manifests in different ways. Like, am I going to have enough for retirement? Am I saving enough for the kids' college? Are all my estate planning documents in order? Do I have a will? Do I have a trust? All of that stuff. And that's exactly why I like Dave Ramsey. Now, hey, I get it. There's a lot of people that have problems with Dave. They don't agree with him. And hey, I'm the first to admit that I had a hard time getting on board with a couple of his teachings. In fact, I still do. But the majority of the things, if we just dug a little bit deeper to understand, I think we would get on board. When you follow his baby steps, it takes a lot of stress out of your life. I mean, baby step two is pay off all your credit cards. If you had all your credit cards paid off, would you feel less stress? Would you be able to sleep a little better at night? Probably. Have an emergency fund for the things that come up. That's baby step three. Have three to six months worth. Man, if you have that, wouldn't that add less stress? Save for retirement. Baby step four, at least 15% of your gross income. And when you don't have debt, it's not that hard to do. The hard part is when we're only saving 6% right now and our lifestyle requires all the rest of our paycheck to live, it's tough to move ourselves from 6 to 15%. Save for your kid's college. Baby step five. I can't tell you how many people I know that are stressing out because their kids are now teenagers and they got a 529 with maybe 1500 bucks in. Not going to cover textbooks for four years, 1500 bucks, And they know they need to get moving on it before their kids are headed off to college and they still have 1500 bucks in the 529 Well, if you had a good plan for your kid's college, wouldn't you be a little less stressed? Wouldn't you be able to sleep a little bit better at night? Dave Ramsey's baby step six is pay off the house early. He talks about getting that house paid off and taking your shoes off and socks off and getting your toes in that grass and saying, this is all mine. Man, that sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds good to me. Wouldn't you like to have your house paid off? Would that cause less stress in your life? Well, I bet if you had to pay it off, you'd be able to save 15% in retirement, save for your kid's college, and sleep better at night. But here's the problem with a lot of family stewards is we're using our head. We're using our head for all of this stuff. And it brings up questions when it comes to Dave Ramsey and his baby steps. See, we got problems with these baby steps because we can't get right in our head some of the controversies around these baby steps. And I'm going to talk about three of them right now and how if you have a problem with it, maybe you'll be able to overcome some of these baby steps. Okay, the first question or the first 
thing that I often hear. Hey, Scott, I know what you're saying. Baby steps are cool, but why in the world would I have an emergency fund when I can do better with my money in the market? I'll just use my home equity line of credit as my emergency fund. I'll invest my what would have been emergency fund in the stock market, and I'll get an average of 10% or 8% or 12% or whatever, but it's way better than earning nothing at the bank. And let me tell you, I get it. This is not the time to be telling people to have three to six months worth of expenses inside of a bank account earning nothing. It's not an easy story to tell. But here's the thing with these three, and you're going to find a common theme in these three. It's not always about the head. It's not always about what's going to get you a better return, possibly, without guarantees. Sometimes it's about what is going to make you sleep better at night. And let me tell you what, there's a lot of people out there that use their home equity line of credit as their emergency fund. But let's rewind back to the housing bubble. Remember that late 2007 into 2009 and continuing on years after the crisis, the banks were in deep, deep trouble. They didn't have money to cover all these defaulted loans. So you know what they did? They sent letters in the mail. They sent letters in the mail to people who had great credit, but now their homes were worth so much less because home values went down. So letters got sent home. Jack and Jill opened up their letter and guess what? The bank took away their HELOC loan. Unemployment went up. A month later, Jack's out of a job. There's no emergency fund because there's no home equity line of credit anymore. The bank can take it away whenever they want. That's not security. That's exactly why we preach three to six months worth of emergency fund in a bank account, a liquid money, not in the stock market because we know that's erratic. It can go up and down, stable money. I don't care if you can probably do better in the stock market with your emergency fund. That's not what it's for. It's not for you to earn a higher return. Now, we want you to do well with that money. And currently, with the Fed interest rates at zero, your brick-and-mortar bank down the road is probably paying you 0.1% interest rate. So do I want you to do better? Absolutely. But you're not going to do that much better. But if you go search online bank accounts, you will find that you'll be able to do about five times better. Find a place like I was looking up yesterday, Alibank. They're paying a half a percent interest rate. And it's not a teaser rate. It's what their interest rate is. Now, a year and a half ago, it was probably almost 2%. And it's since the Fed lowered the interest rates to zero again since the pandemic, Ellie Bank had to lower their interest rate as well. It's been pretty stabilized at that half a percent for a while. But if you have three to six months worth of a living expenses and you got 20, 30, 40, 50 grand or whatever, a half a percent's way better than nothing. But there's nothing that's going to make you sleep better and less stress if you have an emergency fund. So make that happen. As a family steward, make it a priority. Stop using this logical sense in your head because you think you'll be able to do better in the market, but you're not thinking about these catastrophes that could happen. And as a family steward, it is your responsibility emergency funds make sense, even if they're not paying a whole heck of a lot of interest. Now, hopefully interest rates will go up again at some point and we'll see better returns in our savings account. 
All right, so that's one problem that people have with the baby steps, with Dave Ramsey. Here's another one. Scott, why would I pay off my house when my interest rate is 2% or 3% on my home? It's ridiculous, Scott, to pay off the house when I could take that money, invest it in the market, and do better. Have I told you lately that it's not easy being me and my job? Because that's a tough argument. (laughs) It's a really tough one because my head thinks the same way. I believe on average in the last 10 years, I'll do a whole heck of a lot better in the market than I will paying off my 2% loan. So let's talk through this. And I honestly believe there's a couple of ways to attack this. First, stop thinking this logical return with your head. That's the first thing we have to wrap our arms around. If we are investing 15% of our gross income, not including our match from our 401k, and we're saving for our kids' college, why do we have this extra investment in the bank anyway? Why does it matter? When we know that paying off the house someday is a goal of ours. So why not do it sooner rather than later? Either way, it's going to get done or it should get done. Because I'll tell you, people walk through my door with a few million dollars and big fat home loan and condo loan and all kinds of loans. And they sit down and they say, Scott, we think we can retire. We're looking for a second opinion. And I go through all their stuff and I'm like, well, no, it's probably not a good idea if you retire because your monthly spend is still so high. I don't care that you have $2 million. Then others walk through my door with less than a million dollars, sometimes substantially less. And they ask the same question, can I retire? And they don't think that they can because they've been talking to their buddy that has $2 million in their 401k and they might only have four or 500,000, but I look through everything. Oh man, they got a paid off house. They don't have credit cards. They don't spend a lot of money every month. And I get to look him in the eyes and say, yeah, you are absolutely ready to retire. So what are you waiting for? I know for most of the people listening, paying off your house is a goal. Why not make it happen now? The only alternative that I'll give is this. Let's make a separate account for you. Call it the house account, a brokerage account. It's strictly for the house. Nothing else ever. And you put that extra payment on automatic into this brokerage account every single month, knowing that you're going to take that big fat pile once it equals what it is to pay off your house and pay off your house. So then yes, on average over the next 10 years, you'll probably do better than 2%. It'll probably allow you to pay off that house sooner, but there is no guarantee. There is no guarantee in the stock market ever, but that's the only alternative. And if Dave was listening to this show, I don't think he'd be happy with me, but I'm okay with that alternative if it's for your home, because you want to be that guy or that girl that takes your shoes and socks off and stands in the middle of your lawn, get your toes up on in there and say, yeah, this is all mine. I have one more, that's enough on the house, I have one more situation that comes up often, and it goes like this, Scott, why would I have any bonds in my portfolio when stocks do so much better in the long run? And this is a hard one to explain, you want to know why? Because Dave Ramsey doesn't like bonds, he doesn't like them. Why? Because on average, bonds don't do as good as stocks. On average, 
Stocks do way better than bonds. But there's a reason for that. The reason is stocks are a lot riskier than bonds. When I look at risk between 1 and 99, stocks, depending on the company, probably fall somewhere between mid-60s all the way up to a 99. Bonds can be all the way down to a 2. They can get up into the 70s with junk bonds and high-yield bonds, but for the most part, they range in the teens, the 20s, the 30s as far as risk numbers. Of course, you should do better in the long run than with stocks than with bonds. But let's understand the role that bonds play. Bonds are strictly inside of a portfolio, not to eke out some really great return, but to lower the overall risk in our portfolio. So I have people that are reaching for the stars to get the most return that they could possibly get. Yet, when the stock market goes down 10%, they're stressing out and can't sleep. You know, I love William Bernstein. He's written some books. Great, great quote he has, though. And it goes like this. When you've won the game, stop playing with the money you really need. I'm going to say it again. When you've won the game, stop playing with the money you really need. When we look at the stock market, we look at what is your risk tolerance? How much risk can you actually stomach? Then what is your risk capacity? How old are you? How long can you actually handle a downturn? A year, two years, five years? And that helps a lot of advisors create a portfolio of stocks and bonds and blah, blah, blah. But I like to look at it different. That's why we put together comprehensive retirement plans, because I want to know what your required rate of return is. We know we have this ugly thing called inflation. So we're swimming upstream, trying to make sure our money doesn't lose value. And we got to continue to grow our portfolio while we're in retirement to keep up with inflation and our spending. But why are you taking the kind of risk that could average you 10% per year or whatever when all you really need to average is 6% a year? When you could be sleeping a whole heck of a lot better in a portfolio that is not nearly as risky. So I'll say it again. When you've won the game, stop playing with the money you really need. Why are you taking more risk in your portfolio when you don't have to? Why do you have debt when you can work to get out of debt? And why don't you have a solid emergency fund? How are you sleeping at night? This is a question we need to ask ourselves. How are you sleeping at night? What keeps you up at night? Sleep is so important and we just don't get it. We didn't get it as a kid. We don't get it now. But we can all admit when we have a horrible night's sleep. We all know what it's like when we sleep bad or when we're up way too late and we have to get up way too early. We know it stinks. We also know it isn't healthy. What keeps you up at night? Figure it out. If it's this money thing, work on the baby steps. Don't fight it. Stop fighting it. There's excuses not to have an emergency fund. There are excuses not to pay off the house. There are excuses to be in not as risky of a portfolio. 
But why are you fighting it? Because at the end of the day, your health is so much more important than your wealth. And it's taken me a long time to figure this out. I mean, shoot, I turned 50 this year. I'm just starting to figure it out. That who cares how much money I have if I'm not gonna be around to see my kids grow up, my grandkids, all of that business. Does it really matter then? Health is so much more important than wealth. And those that have very little health would push all their wealth to the center of the table for just a little bit more health. And sleep is one of the most important things we can do as family stewards to stay healthy. So I'll ask you one last time, what keeps you up at night? Figure it out and develop a plan so that you can overcome and sleep better at night. Oh my goodness, my time is up. I have to go. I hope everyone has an awesome, awesome week and I will see you on the flip side. The Best in Wealth Podcast is hosted by Scott Wellens. Scott Wellens is the principal at Fortress Planning Group. Fortress Planning Group is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities Act of Wisconsin in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Fortress Planning Group does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Best in Wealth Podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.